Hello, my name is Sam Smith, and this is Map of the Maze podcast from PepTalks, in which I'll be exploring a business theme related specifically to private equity-backed and entrepreneurial companies. Here we are in Manchester, pre our pep talk, where we have uh, a really interesting group of members coming along and uh, a couple of first-timers, and we're using it as an opportunity to record the next episode of our podcast, uh, Map of the Maze, with Mark Fowl, one of our founder members, almost there right at the beginning. Uh, <laughs> Good of, afternoon. Of, of Pep Talk. So how did you find yourself as a CEO in a private equity about business? How did right, that yeah. come about? Well, I guess it all started probably through frustration. I'd spent the early part of my career working for US software businesses um, in the UK and Europe and around Asia Pacific. Really enjoyed parts of it, but didn't really enjoy working for American businesses, if I'm 100% honest and uh, decided that actually I was probably equally qualified to make my own mistakes as I was to live by somebody else's. So together with three colleagues back in 1996, we set up our first business, which was a digital agency. It wasn't called that back then. It was called an internet professional services company back then. But today is what would be called a digital agency. Um, business grew very nicely. We, we seemed to uh, kind of run into business quite quickly. The company was profitable within first few weeks and continued to be. We uh, probably sold that a little bit too early, grew it to about 100 people inside 24 months, Mm -hmm. Uh, sold a business called US Web in the States, uh, which is a NASDAQ listed company. It was was a good good outcome, but probably a bit of an early outcome for us. Uh, In the background, we'd started up a a loyalty-based ISP um, just before FreeServe launched, and we were going great guns, but when FreeServe launched, uh, 10 pounds a month yeah, it doesn't really stand up too well to free email. <laughs> so uh, we ended up actually managing to sell that business off and got our money back effectively, but not a lot more. But what we did have in the background of that was a hosting business. We kept that, that wasn't sold. Um, and it kind of the thing that's coming out of the ashes of Connect2 was um, a business called Attender. And that company at the beginning in 99 was a half million pound turnover business owned by a small group of us and one independent shareholder who had a thin slice. Uh, we, we looked at a business in the US, uh, also listed on NASDAQ, a company called Data Return, who was doing about $14 million in revenue and was valued over a billion uh, as things were at the, the sort of end of 99, beginning of 2000, mm. and thought what we'll do is we'll build something like that and sell it really quickly. We'll have a bit of that. Exactly, we thought a great opportunity. So we set about uh, putting a business plan together, went to meet with DLJ, who at the time uh, were, prior to them being subsumed into Credit Suisse, and we had a few contacts there, met them, and literally from uh, beginning of February to end of March, we had our first meeting and then had five million in the bank at the end of March. So I I don't think there's probably ever been an easier time to raise money. Yeah, amazing, pre.com. And yeah, you'd really, question the kind of due diligence mm. that wasn't put into the investment that was made. But yeah, that, and that got us out of the traps really with our our own uh, business that we were really excited about selling in 12 months time. What did a tender become? That's, that's sort of the start. What was the end? A tender when it started was effectively a website hosting business that ran Microsoft websites. And that's what it did. That's all it did. Not just Microsoft's, but any Mm. Uh, company that decided to build their web infrastructure on a Microsoft platform but it was always 
around websites that did things, so transactional environments, yeah, be it booking systems, be it e-commerce environments, and, and we were quite pioneering in taking advantage of Microsoft technology as it was launched. Yeah, what, what it became uh, by the time we exited from it in, in 2016 uh, and sold the business to a company called Insono in the US uh, was yeah, a 44 million pound turnover business grown organically, 90 plus percent recurring revenue, uh, you know, some fantastic clients, um, fantastic team of people who truly bonded with each other around a real clarity of purpose mm. uh, and felt we, we kind of stood in a pretty good position uh, in the UK market compared to other managed service providers and uh, certainly when we went around on the sort of private equity roadshows and stuff I think you know, most companies looked at us and said actually that's a good example of a, a quality business in yeah. that space. And along the way you used DLJ, um, MNC. We, we went through tons. We, we started off, off, our first two investors were DLJ and Texas Pacific Group. Um, DLJ then got sold to Credit Suisse and then got spat out as what's now known as Phoenix Equity Partners, mm. who many people will be familiar with. And Hugh Lennon, the chairman mm. nowadays, was actually the guy who sat on our board. Really? Back, back I didn't know that. Yeah. Right. Nice chat, really yeah. nice guy. And we uh, went through the first kind of 12 months moving along quite nicely, bought UBS and Compaq on actually as uh, strategic investors that we thought would be quite useful for taking us to the next round. So a nice up round there. Then the world changed and we our revenue had gone from half a million in 99 to 2.7 in 2000 to 7.2 in 2001. Uh, so we were going great, great guns, but then things started to flatten off as the dot-com fallout came through from the agency side mm. into the hosting side and people who had experimented with dot-com enterprises started closing those down and that was where we really started to get into a challenge mm. that our growth rate was not going to satisfy what we were looking to do from an exit perspective so we ended up with those uh, one of those beautiful kind of stand in front of the mirror uh, moments and say right what are you going to do about this and it was, it was at that point that we either had a choice of folding the business or trying to raise more money. Mm. Uh, we got to a point, uh, we were six weeks from running out of cash, uh, with 120 people still employed. We got up to 160 people on that first first time round, which um, most people would do, be able to do the maths. It's not a profitable business, 160 people and 7.2 million of revenue. Uh, we managed to secure investment from a company called MC Ventures out of Boston, who came in and uh, yeah, were, were uh, were really supportive of us as a business, but it was an expensive transaction for us in terms mm. of how much of the equity needed to go as a consequence. Mm. But yeah, we, we felt we'd uh, uh, been supported by a lot of people and we were eager to make sure we could take the business forward. So mm. at that point in time, yeah, again, it's quite a soul-searching period, but uh, we MC came on board. We then kind of traded our way out of that um, to become a much more profitable business and mm. through a few other rounds of private equity before we'd selling the business in, in, in the back end of 2016. It's almost exactly three years ago, just over. So in getting to know you over the last couple of years, um, a, a couple of things have really stood out. Um, you know, you're, a, you're an entrepreneur and a founder and you, you built a business from scratch. You've had some really tough moments, you know, moments of truth when perhaps you know, you're very close to running out of money. And then certainly with the tender coming back and, and being super successful with it. but. 
uh, along the way, you you did everything that everybody else was doing at that time of you know professionalizing the business, diversifying your products, looking at the quality of your revenue streams and client retention, quality of your customers. But then you had also you had a sort of second epiphany, didn't you, in um, thinking, why, why are we doing this? Yeah. What, what is what it's, is it? It's, it's Why do we get out of bed it, in the morning? It, it, it's a funny old thing, isn't it? You, know, you, you, you start a business and it's your baby and you care passionately about it, and then yeah, what one day you kind of wake up and you, you just don't feel as in love with it as you did the day you started it. Yeah, and and that's not a good place to be when you're the CEO and leader of a company. And mm. yeah, you know, if you don't feel it, you, you, it's very hard to hide it. Maybe not. You don't vocalise the fact you've fallen out of love with it, but you you, you can see it, and your you know, people around you can see it in the way in which you behave, you know, your attitude, your approach, your enthusiasm, your desire, your hunger to do stuff. And uh, I remember sitting down with a few people saying, "Yeah, this this is not a good place to be." And one of the chaps I was working with had come across a guy called Simon Sinek. And Simon Sinek has written a book, well, he's written several now, but the first of which was a thing called Start With Why. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, you know, I would encourage everybody listening to this, if you haven't heard of him, to go to YouTube or go to TED Talks and search out the TED Talks Start probably, With Why. Probably one of the best TED Talks of oh, all time. Incredible. 40, I think last time I looked at it, it was 42, 43 million views. Yeah. So we found, found Simon Sinek, read the book, watched the video, yeah, went to the self-help group. No, I didn't go to the self-help group, <laughs> but it, it kind of felt a little bit like that at the yeah. end of it. And then you sit down and you kind of look at your business and you think, well, what do I run? I run, I run an infrastructure company. Yeah, how, how do I get massively excited and enthusiastic about that above and beyond the numbers itself? And yeah, we, work, we worked it through and I think we got to the point where as a management team, we felt genuinely enthused about the purpose we created for the company. We felt it was a great way to rally our clients around the cause that we were trying to champion, such that they would want to be with us if that's what we were trying to do. Mm. And they would also go and tell their friends about it as well, mm. which is an important part of, of, uh, of that whole ecosystem. And likewise, with people who worked in the company, yeah, our, our enthusiasm would clearly ripple through. Their enthusiasm, hopefully, would be yeah, buoyed by our enthusiasm, and we'd end this wonderful, virtuous cycle mm. of enthusiasm, which, in the end, would actually drive the numbers forward, and and I think it genuinely made a difference, you know, in, in many many ways. So that being moving to being what I guess many people would now call a purpose-led company, mm. but um, I think that's probably slightly slightly more modern nomenclature than actually Simon Sinek used to use back then. It yeah. was very much about you know find your why and deliver on it. What was your why? Our, our why was basically contrived out of. Yeah, building enduring relationships with our clients to help them harness new technology and deliver the business outcome thereafter. And in doing so, at all times and all places, ensure peace of mind for the CIOs, as in the individuals inside those companies we work with. And this whole peace of mind thing rattled through everything we did. It permeated through the website and the literature. It rattled through the award ceremonies that we did. It rattled through compensation that we provided people. It rattled through appraisal processes. Yeah, everything we did was aligned towards peace of mind. Mm. Yeah, when people came into the company, they would interview for a job. Maybe it was a finance person that came in. You'd then have someone who was assigned as a cultural ambassador would then come in and say, okay, do they really believe in this peace of mind or do they just want to be a finance person and don't really give a monkeys about the client? Mm. So you would, you would really try and road test it inside the company. 
and make sure that everything you did really lived and breathed the essence of peace of mind. How long did it take to, to get that into the business and be adopted by the management team and, and the middle management and the employees? And how long? Yeah. But it, it, it's a hard question to answer because I, I, I can answer it from my perspective. I mean, what I can say is I think when you start to see your NPS surveys coming back from your clients, and they quote things, you deliver peace of mind for me, mm. yeah, and you're getting that played back to you, you kind of think, well, actually, this is obviously getting out and it's resonating with, with, with people. You see it in the company, in the way in which people behave and call each other to task based upon, is that really what the client would do? Mm. Is that really what the client would want to see you doing? Mm. Does that really deliver peace of mind for the client? But I, I, I think, yeah, e even though I think we went at it flat out, I would say it's three to four years of doing it before it really became ingrained in the culture of the company. Mm. And yeah, it, it's like a lot. Of, it's like trust. You know, it's very hard to to gain, but it's very easy to lose. So as a leadership team across the business, we needed to make sure you know we were absolutely true to delivering on that. What What did this do for you as as the entrepreneur and the and the CEO who? Uh, at the point of this epiphany, was feeling a little bit tired and bruised. I yeah, suppose. yeah. Well, I, th I think, if, you know, not to get too corny about it, but I kind of fell back in love with the business. You mm. know, really did. You know, I, it, to, to this day, I feel incredibly proud and fortunate to work to have worked with the team that we worked with, to have worked with the clients that we had, and to build a to have built a business that genuinely was purpose driven. You know, it really was, and. I think you know, the way in which we made decisions in the business, whilst financially framed, we would certainly make decisions based upon purpose before necessarily the economic impact of it mm -hmm. was, was considered. You know, it was about what's the right thing to do, considering this is our purpose as a company. Mm -hmm. you, you just um, referenced NPS, but uh, I know that you used that as the, as the measuring stick, didn't you, all the way through? Yeah. Um, how how did you use it? How often would you use it? How often would you reference or, or ask your clients to 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 go through the process? Of so we NPS? did both NPS for our clients and ENPS for the people that worked in the business, and we surveyed every six months. So our promoter score was recorded every six months that we then feed into the net promoter system. Mm -hmm. uh, again, exactly the same process, both internally and externally. Yeah. Our, ask the client the NPS question, you get the answer back, you ask as a number, you ask them for the reasons, you then look for common trends in the reasons, you then tell them the reasons that everybody's given to you for wanting or be concerned about your business, mm. you tell them what you're gonna change by next time before the next survey goes out six months later, mm. you say this is what we said we were gonna do, this is what we've done, we'd like you to survey us again please. And we probably did that for or five years straight, I would think. How many clients are we talking about? A couple of hundred. And would they all do it? No, no. You what, you'd never get. What the sort same of return rate. would you get? You get about sixty percent engagement level, yeah, across the group, and yeah, it, it kind of varied who did and who didn't. Um, it varied on who the service manager was. It was normally a pretty good indication of uh, they were either incredibly happy and couldn't be bothered to to, to answer uh, answer it, or they had some issue. And yeah, it gave you, you another opportunity to go and talk to them, sit down and understand what the problem was, what the problem wasn't. 
and, and often it was just I just didn't get around to it. But mm. yeah, you can encourage it, but you can't always force it down the throats. Mm-hmm. But getting that level of engagement back was um, was not unusual uh, from an NPS perspective, and and the scores, you know, literally I think there was only one period that I can remember they didn't go up and it was flat. So you know, we ended up with a uh, a very happy situation with both the clients mm. and the people inside the business. In fact, the people inside the business were even happier than the clients were. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's 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 a constant around. sort of holding the mirror up, isn't it, to to yourselves and the business? Of, you know, of I mean, it's it's sort of standard private equity practice to understand the reality of the performance of the business. But this is you know, this is actually before you did the deal with Darwin, isn't it? This is before like, you were doing, you were in with MNC, but you hadn't done the full buyout with Darwin. Yeah, so the purpose side of things started before Darwin, yeah. the NPS, but I'm trying to think when it would have been around Darwin's time, actually. I can't remember if we started just before or just after. But, um, yeah, it, again, you come back to this whole start with why. Get the purpose in, get it driving through the organisation, then start to look for ways you can measure the impact of it and ways in which you can improve mm. as a consequence. How, how did people feel? Because you, the exit was a tender to Insono, mm. and Sono being a private equity about business, but really it's a trade acquisition, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, how did all the employees react then? Because they'd, they'd obviously been very loyal to a tender and loved working for a tender and now working for Insono. Yeah, it's... it's um, I think mixed is the honest answer, you know, but if you look at um, the background of some of the people who founded Insono and you looked at the rationales behind bringing the businesses together, yeah, it was very solid, very strong. So actually from the ability to stand up in front of people and genuinely, you know, and 100% honestly tell them why we'd done the deal, yeah, I, I think people could understand it. You know, it, mm. it wasn't hard. It wasn't a big reach uh, for them. It wasn't a big ask even for them to, to kind of stretch their imaginations to why on earth this would make uh, sense. You became self obvious. You became in Sono. Attender is in Sono UK and Europe, isn't it? Correct. But haven't haven't and Sono adopted it? This purpose. That that like, yes we approach. Did, we did a lot of work with the um, uh, the team in the US and that. Yeah, we came up with a new purpose for Insono uh, and all the hows that go along with the whys and uh, it's certainly been adopted on a, a worldwide basis, yeah. Mm. So, it, yeah, Insono would certainly call itself a purpose-led business. Yeah. Is there anything else you would um, suggest or uh, advise CEOs and especially owners um, and entrepreneurs how to continue to be motivated when you're in such a, a long haul um, role. I mean, from the point of starting late 90s to the point of exiting, I mean, talking about 17, 18 years, I yeah. suppose, for a tender. And how did you, <laughs> as well as, as, as much as the purpose that was there was driving you, and that was a great epiphany, what, what, what else really well, kept, um, kept your um, energy levels high and... I think there were different things at different times. You know, one, one of the beautiful things that we have in the a world of technology is the fact that things change all the time. And for some people, that's a real threat. You know, if, if I'm in a, I don't know, I'm probably use the wrong example. If, if I run an accountancy practice, you know, the world doesn't shift massively from one year to the next. 
You go back to the IT services world back in 2000 when the tender was really first backed by private equity and you look at that world now, it's fundamentally changed, mm. you know, fundamentally. You know, the course of the internet, which at the time was very nascent, you know, now is embedded in everybody's lives, not just from a business, but a client. So the world has shifted dramatically. And the ability to navigate those turns and twists uh, appeals to a certain type of person. You know, if you want to be in a static business, then fantastic. You know, go in that set. For me, it's not my not not my bag. Yeah, I think you need to enjoy the twists and turns, and they're pretty good at reinvigorating you. Mm. If you just focus on the numbers, I think it, it you know it's kind of back back to the whole cynic thing. A profit is not a purpose. Mm. Yeah, you need a purpose, and if you can align that for me anyway around a client or a range of technologies or whatever it may be that you can genuinely get excited about then I think you keep yourself in a good place. Okay, Mark. Thank you. That's been great. You can download our podcast series from all the usual podcast places. Or do go and subscribe to the show. We'll be back with another interview next month. But for now, goodbye and thank you for listening.